Welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I am not a priest or a theologian. I'm just the kind of guy who goes to Catholic speed dating. (laughs) And I know nothing except what this guy tells me and that's why we're here. I don't have anything witty or any amusing banter to start this episode off. So why don't we cut straight to the chase? What are we talking about this week, Brian? Well, this week, we are going to keep on going from last time, and we're going to talk about confirmation. Oh, great. So confirmation is a thing that we talked about a little bit in our initiation episodes. It's a ceremony that we talked about in a bunch of different types of Christianity. So what specifically about confirmation are we getting into today? So this week, we're going to get a little more into the historical, theological basis of it instead of... Just kind of what people do. Okay, that makes sense. Now that we've talked about the nuts and bolts, let's talk about the why. Exactly. So the story that that people say is the reason for confirmation is in the book of Acts of the Apostles. It's basically part two of the Gospel of Luke. I was going to say, I have never heard of this book of the Bible, and I'm sure that there's other books of the Bible that I also haven't heard of, but... The Book of Acts of the Apostles. Yes, the Acts of the Apostles. It's, yeah, basically just part two of Luke. Okay, Luke part two. Exactly. Does Luke have a weird second name like all the other ones do? Not that I'm aware of. Okay, so Luke is always Luke. Yes. He's writing to a guy named Theophilus. That's a good name, Theophilus. I'm into it. Okay, so what happens in Acts of the Apostles? So, basically the story is what Jesus' followers did after Jesus died, rose, and ascended into heaven. Okay, so we're after Easter. Exactly. Great, I got it. So it's, the whole story is written kind of like a hero's journey. It's pretty exaggerated. It's it's honestly one of the ones that's the most fun to read out of the New Testament. Is it sort of storybooky? Yeah, definitely. Okay, and it's New Testament. Yes, this one is New Testament. All right. Um, and is New Testament scary mean God, or is New Testament nice welcoming God? Mostly nice welcoming God. Uh, Revelation is kind of scary god. Okay, but Revelation is weird in a whole lot of ways. It is, definitely. Someday I'll read Revelation. Oh, someday, Maybe someday we'll, we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> uh, and our good buddy Paul is one of the main characters. Paul! The Apostles. Paul, our friend of the pod, Paul. Um, I think you get more excited about Paul than, like, literally anyone else. I have been told by so many people that there is no reason for me to be excited about Paul. And I realize that there's probably not anything interesting about Paul other than he's the one guy I know at this point. And so I'm just clinging desperately to anything that feels familiar. (laughs) Uh, One of these days we'll get into the reasons why he's problematic. Okay. But for now, uh, we'll get into the story uh, that leads us to confirmation. All right. So... Jesus has ascended into heaven, and the twelve apostles are all together. Uh, they're gathered for the Jewish festival of weeks. It happens. Is, are the twelve apostles the guys at the table during the Last Supper? Yes, except there's one guy who's different. Judas, the bad one, is okay. not there. Yeah, we'll talk about Judas someday. Um, a guy named Matthias replaces him. Okay, great. So twelve guys hanging out. Yeah, hanging out, celebrating this festival all together, and all of a sudden. A wind comes rushing into the room, and it fills the entire house. And tongues of fire come to rest on the twelve of them. I'm already laughing. 
And then they all start, start speaking different languages because the spirit made them able to. So this is speaking in tongues? Sort of. Okay. So people are gathered from all over the ancient world because there's this Jewish festival going on. Um, and they all speak different languages. And all of those people hear the apostles speaking to them in their own language. Interesting. And So is this like during the Jewish High Holy Days? Like, do we know what the modern equivalent of this holiday is? The modern equivalent... Well, so the... I'm not Jewish. Please, no one get mad at me. <laughs> uh, the Feast of Weeks, I believe, is still a thing. Okay, great. It happens 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, the Christian equivalent to this is... We have Easter, and then 50 days later, we have Pentecost. Great. So this is... The Feast of Unleavened Bread is Passover, right? Correct. This is not a podcast about Judaism. Yeah, guys, I try to stay away from Judaism as much as I can because I know someone will burn me on it. We will bring in experts when we need to talk about Judaism. Back to everyone is speaking in not tongues, but rather into the languages of all the people gathered for this festival. Yeah, so all these languages being spoken, it's crazy. People are amazed because these dudes are all from Galilee, so they should have just spoken Aramaic. Why do they know all these languages? Some people are like, oh man, this is an act of God. Other people just say, these dudes have had too much new wine. What is the difference between new wine and old wine? So apparently that's like extra insulting because new wine is like not as fermented, so not as alcoholic. So these guys are lightweights. Okay. (laughs) So there are some people who just think that these are a bunch of drunks. Right. We've all had a moment in our lives where we've gotten drunk and spoken a foreign language. Let's be real. So then Peter, in response to these people who think they're drunk, gets up and says, No, these men are not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. (laughs) Oh, great. But this is before they had clean drinking water. I don't think being drunk at nine in the morning feels like that much of a stretch. I don't know. Peter was not getting drunk at nine in the morning. That's all I know. All right. Well, whatever Peter says. Honestly, one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. (laughs) (laughs) We're not drunk, it's only 9am Clearly they've never tailgated a football game (laughs) Right? Uh, So then Peter goes on to give this really great speech About how the prophet Joel said that God would pour out a portion of his spirit So that all of his sons and daughters could prophesy Like, So what just happened? Okay. Um, And also, the speech was about who Jesus was and what he did. So we're still eulogizing Jesus a lot, because he recently ascended to heaven? Yeah, I mean, like, we're literally still doing that. Okay, yes. (laughs) But this is in the, like, initial heyday of extensive eulogizing of Jesus. Because this is how we got Christianity, was a bunch of people walking around telling the story about how Jesus died and then came back and then ascended to heaven. Yeah, a lot of that. Um, Mostly Paul. Mostly Paul talking a lot about Jesus. Okay. Oh, Paul. (laughs) Is how we got Christianity. The speech was so good that people asked what they could do to follow this Jesus dude. And Peter said, repent and get baptized. And 3,000 of them got baptized that day. So this is how we get Christianity. Speeches, (laughs) movement, grand dramatic gestures that are then totally fables that they put in the Bible. Oh, yeah. It's it's so dramatic. The Acts of the Apostles is so dramatic. I love it. So they all repent and get baptized. And so that's basically, that is kind of the story where, like, the the main one that people uh, say is for confirmation. So 
the wind and the fire in this are symbols of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's true in like other parts of the Bible too. In First Kings, uh, there's a line about how uh, a guy is in a cave and uh, God is supposed to come to him. And then there's an earthquake, but God is not in the earthquake. And then there's a fire, but God is not in the fire. And then there's a small whispering, uh, like a wind, and that's where God is. So not in the big stuff, but in the little stuff. Yeah, so that's like the the wind is where is the Holy Spirit, and then like the fire. I don't know. Do you know the um, the burning bush with Moses? I know that a burning bush was a thing that happened. Okay, so God comes down in the form of a burning bush. Okay, so that so, was God. Yeah, so fire, fire. So wind and fire. It's the Holy Spirit. He came down on them. Okay, and then you you actually mentioned speaking in tongues. This story is one of the ones that is explains speaking in tongues, sort of. <laughs> it's um, one of the reasons people justify speaking in tongues. Exactly. Great. Here, it was people speaking, like, real languages, and people understood them. But they were speaking languages that they did not know previously. Correct. Now, I'm going to ask a question. I recently was listening to something or reading something, maybe, about exorcisms, and I know that on the list of things that could make you sound like you were possessed is knowing a language that you don't actually know. So are they possessed? Well, no. They were they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay. So they were possessed with the good kind of possession and not the bad kind of possession? I mean, I, I guess. I guess they're, like, technically, there's a ghost in them. What is it about <laughs> being possessed by spirits that makes you learn languages? Um, I mean, I think it's that they're, like, speaking through you. Okay, and they're omnipotent and, or whatever? And they know the languages, so it doesn't okay. matter if you know them. I don't know. All right, I'm just saying. <laughs> trying to put some pieces together here. So, yeah, in this story, people are speaking languages that other people recognize as human speech. But by the time we get to Paul going around, there, there are these uh, people who are speaking in, like, the language of angels that is unintelligible to humans, which is, like, what you're thinking of. When people are speaking in tongues. Okay. And Paul, man, he has some feelings about speaking in tongues. Yeah. He said that if no one understands what you're saying, you might as well be talking to air. (laughs) (laughs) Paul, really sassy (laughs) about speaking in tongues. He also says, I would rather use five words to instruct people than 3,000 in a tongue. Oh my god. Um, And... Some other choice quotes from Paul is, uh, speaking in tongues is only useful for believers because if a stranger shows up and everyone is speaking in tongues, then they'll think you're all out of your minds. (laughs) (laughs) And his last one is, uh, only two or three at a time should speak in tongues. And even then, only if you have an interpreter. Otherwise, keep quiet in church. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) Welcome to Sunday School for Heathens, a Paul fancast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only sharing the fun things. We'll get to the, the right. problematic ones. Yeah, I think that my idea of Paul has just been deeply colored by my guide over here. By just a selective Paul. <laughs> selective Paul, the best kind of Paul. All right, so from this, we get God is wind and fire. We get speaking in tongues. Yeah, so, and then there's some other biblical references outside of this story where we get some things that turn into confirmation. Uh, Later in Acts, there's some people in Samaria who are converted. Um, They've already been baptized, but they don't yet have the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John lay hands on them, and that happens. Okay. Um, And that kind of explains why a bishop does uh, confirmation and not just, like, anybody. You have to have someone with more of a direct connection to, like, imbue you with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's uh, the 
unbroken line from Peter, who, like Jesus said, should lead the church. Okay, so it's chain of custody of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> Great. No, that works. Okay, so to confirm, because I'm just wanting to make sure I understand yeah. here. There's baptism, which is like, we wash away your sins, and now you are clean and renewed and ready to become a fresh member of the church. And then confirmation is where we, like, take the power of the Holy Spirit and we put it into you, and now you are, like, real and part of the bit. Yes, but... It's kind of weird because you get everything you need to be a good Christian through baptism. But baptism makes you the vessel, and confirmation gives you the thing that is the spirit that then ignites your religiosity, I guess. Right? Yeah. You, um... But you don't need confirmation, right? So, confirmation, basically the wording is it it makes you more perfect. It, um... Brings you into the more perfect fullness of grace. So you're already perfect, but this makes you more perfect. Okay, that feels like pushing it. <laughs> yeah, what you said reminded me of what Cyprian of Carthage said that I found. He said that Christians are not born when they receive the Holy Spirit. They're born in baptism. So like you said, like the vessel is created and then the Holy Spirit has a place to go after baptism has happened. Okay. So, good on you. You're a third century theologian. Good. I have all of the thoughts of a third century <laughs> theologian, except for I am not at all a third century theologian. I mean, you know about as much as some of them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that makes me feel bad for third century theologians, really. <laughs> you know, they were figuring it out. It's fine. Okay. Whatever you say. Um, so, yeah, at the... At that time, in the 3rd century, it was still uh, baptism, confirmation, first communion, all at once. Um, Early on in the church, it was mostly adults getting it because the church wasn't really that old enough that people had kids and then the kids were born into the religion. So we, we did them all at once. But then when Constantine made Christianity the state religion in the 4th century, there was a huge growth in the number of Christians. So by the 5th century, a bishop couldn't be there for every baptism. So then we get into what I was talking about, the split between East and West. Uh, Last time I mentioned, it's broken up. The West does baptism and then waits and does Mm -hmm. confirmation. And the East lets the priest do all of it. Yeah. But the, the reason they're okay with that is because the bishops bless the oil. So as long as there's bishops involved somewhere. Exactly. Because the idea is that... Uh, in confirmation, we are part of the whole universal church. Okay. It brings you into the whole. Yeah. And it makes you more perfect. And makes you more perfect, whatever <laughs> on earth that means. So it ended up settling in the West around the age of seven for a long time is when people got confirmed. And then First Communion happened between you when you were like 12 and 14. Okay. Then that didn't change until about in 1910, Pope Pius X lowered the age of First Communion to seven, and people started doing confirmation later. So they swapped at some point. Yeah. So I was going to say, didn't we talk about this last week? First Communion is like the thing you do as sort of a kid, and then confirmation is after you're a little more aware of what you're doing? Exactly. That that all happened and settled into place around 1910. Okay. Today, it's you get confirmed pretty much any time between 7 and 16, usually on the later end of that. Okay. Um, it can be done younger, as long as you've been baptized. 
Um, it's usually only done when you're really young if there's, like, worry that you're going to die because they would like you to have it before you die. And they want you to be as perfect as possible? Exactly. So did they start confirming kids younger when, like, everyone had polio? Maybe. Or, like, the Spanish flu or measles or whatever all those epidemics were that killed a gazillion children, tragically, the turn of the century? Like, if your kid was sick, you might have, like, tried to call in a bishop. Mm. Or in, like, emergency cases, a priest can do it. But as it is today, it mostly gets seen as a sacrament of maturity. You're an adult in the church. Okay. Um, Although Thomas Aquinas, who we've talked about before, would disagree. Okay. What does Thomas Aquinas say? Because he says that he's seen children filled with the Holy Spirit fight for their faith, even even to the point of bloodshed. And the age of their body didn't matter because they were filled with the maturity of the Holy Spirit. Well, well, well. I mean, I'm glad that Thomas Aquinas takes children seriously, because I think that people don't sometimes, and I respect that, but also sassy, sassy Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know if these theologians are actually as sassy as I make them seem. <laughs> but they seem pretty sassy. Uh, I like to think they are. Maybe it's, maybe it's all added electoralizing. Um, Who knows? But whatever. Yeah. Uh, so... Briefly, uh, more specific how the how the Catholics do uh, confirmation. Bishop shows up. You're you're there. You've got a sponsor, and you've picked out a confirmation name. Yep. Uh, he says a prayer with his hands raised, kind of over above everybody who's there, because it's usually a large group of you, because he brought the bishop in for it. Yep. And then he approaches you individually, lays his hands on you, says, "Be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit." And puts oil on you, and then shakes your hand. Okay. I also have read in some places that he used to, like, slap you. Like, not, not hard, but, like, <laughs> like a light, like a love tap. To, like, push the Holy Spirit into you? No, it's kind of like, get ready, you're going to fight for your faith. Okay. <laughs> so this is the, like, you are now become a warrior of God ceremony. Exactly. That's the weird thing. There's so much battle imagery yeah. Um, it's like, this is preparing you to defend the faith. Wow, that's so... I mean, I guess the cru- Crusades and, like, the process of becoming a new religion at a time where people were still getting crucified toughens you up. Yeah, I... You know, sometimes you need it. Some people still think they need it. Fair. Um, now, where does the confirmation name come into the ceremony, then? Uh, the, the bishop will, like, greet you with your, your confirmation name. He'll ask you what your name is, and then he'll say, uh, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit, in my case, Catherine. Great. Uh, other fun note, up until it got edited out in 1910, you could not marry your confirmation sponsor because they were supposed to be, like, a spiritual parent to you, and that would just be weird. That's... (laughs) It makes me wonder why they had to make that rule. <laughs> That's all I gotta say. Um, but yeah, it, it was like a disqualifying thing for marriage, but they've taken it out since. <laughs> That's so weird. I also mentioned that uh, this is not a sacrament to most Protestants. Mm-hmm. It's more just a, you're an adult, it's reaffirming. Yeah. And the reason it's not a sacrament is because it's we're not explicitly told to do it in the Bible. Okay. Like, we are explicitly told to get baptized in the Bible, and we're explicitly told to do uh, communion in the Bible. Okay. That makes sense, then. So a lot, of, a lot of denominations will say, like, these are the two, everything else you're making up. Great. 
Because the Acts of the Apostles doesn't say, uh, we gave a speech, you now must repent and be baptized, and that's how confirmation happened. It just says, and now you must repent and be baptized. Yeah, as close as it gets is in the letter to the Hebrews, Paul kind of like lists uh, the steps of being a Christian. He does, He says that there are repentance from dead works and having faith in God, and then instruction about baptism and the laying on of hands and the laying on of hands is interpreted as uh, confirmation. And then after that, he says the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So okay. he lists it as a step in that, and that's what some people will use. But there's other people who, uh, like Martin Luther, he thinks that it's sacramental, but it's not a sacrament. Is sacrament light? Yeah, he's, so he's like, holy water is a... An important ritualistic thing that we have, but it's not a sacrament because okay. we're not, it's not biblically based. In response to arguments that because it's sort of mentioned in the Bible, he asks, is everything the, that the apostles did a sacrament? Like, they ate and gained strength from that, and also they preached. Are those sacraments? I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> um, no, I think I, like, I actually... I, I get it. He, that, I think that's a totally fair point. It, it's a slippery slope argument. Oh, yeah, but it's a really reasonable one. Yeah, absolutely. Like, <laughs> what, if this one became a sacrament because they did it, what's to stop everything else from being a sacrament because they did it? But I guess at some point we figured out what was more important than other things and what also was sort of natural and implied. Exactly. And then also the there's that uh, the more perfect baptismal grace um, a lot of people, the pushback is that no grace is grace. It's already perfect. You can't make more it perfect is more silly. perfect. Um, more especially perfect not silly. through a human institution because confirmation is from humans and you can't improve upon God's gifts through baptism. Okay. That also seems like a reasonable argument. Also because the idea of more perfect is sort of silly. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of weird things in the catechism. Yep. <laughs> And then the last one is some people argue that confirmation is just indoctrination into a specific denomination. But that applies to all of the types of confirmation, not just the sacramental ones. Yeah. Because it seems like what we learned in the last couple episodes is that there's a lot of different types of confirmations, and some of them are more important than others, but they're all part of the ritual, whether or not they're a sacrament. Right, and they're definitely more about the specifics, whereas baptism is kind of more overall. Yeah, for sure. It's one of the ways that a lot of these groups show their uniqueness, it seems like. Yeah, I think that's fair. Will it down, get a little more specific. Yeah. Um, all right, well, that is what I have on confirmation. Great. Is it time for the Patriots Pop Quiz? I think it is. It is time for the Patronage Pop Quiz, where I tell Shannon about a saint, and she has to guess what they are the patron of. Who do we have this week, Brian? This week is St. Anthony of Padua. Okay. He was born Fernando Martins in Lisbon, Portugal in 1195 to a wealthy family. He asked to be sent to the Abbey of Santa Cruz at the age of 15, and there he trained in theology and Latin. He was ordained and made the head of hospitality. He felt called to join a, the new order of the Franciscans 
at a hermitage dedicated to St. Anthony of Egypt. And he got permission to go there, and in honor of that St. Anthony, changed his name to Anthony. He traveled to Morocco to preach, but got sick, and tried to head back to Portugal. But on the way, he got shipwrecked, and he ended up in San Paulo. While he was there, a group of Dominicans showed up. The Dominicans were known for their preaching, so the Franciscans, who were already there, assumed that they would be the ones preaching. But the Dominicans assumed that the Franciscans would preach. So... Anthony's boss made him do it off the cuff, but he was so filled with the Holy Spirit that he was so good that St. Francis of Assisi, like the founder of the Franciscans, was impressed and became his friend and gave him a really valuable prayer book. Uh, This was a very valuable book because it was before the invention of the printing press, so it's hard to get a big book like this. Uh, A novice who was leaving the order stole the book And Anthony prayed that it would be found or returned. And it was. And more than that, the novice rejoined the order. Another time, I love this, uh, Anthony was trying to preach to heretics, but they wouldn't listen to him. So he preached to a group of fish that gathered around him. It was, he pointed out it was not for the instruction of the fish, but for the delight of the angels and to ease his own soul. Plus when people saw that the fish were listening to him, they decided they might as well listen too. Uh, He was known for his simple and effective preaching, and that caused him to be declared a doctor of the church by Pope Pius XII in 1946. Also, uh, 336 years after his death, he was exhumed, and his tongue was incorrupted because his teachings were so pure. Oh, huh. Also, I think the, like, weird saying body parts are weird. I just gotta say it. I just gotta say it. Fair. (laughs) Relics that are the body parts of saints are never not kind of (laughs) icky. So, well, the rest of him was decomposed. It was just the tongue. That's maybe <laughs> it here. Uh, so, anyway, Shannon, what is St. Anthony of Padua the patron saint of? Is he the patron saint of preachers? Or preaching? See, you would think that. Like, even I'm surprised he's not. <laughs> oh. He is the patron saint Against barrenness, against shipwreck, against starvation, against starving, against sterility, for American Indians, uh, for amputees, uh, animals, asses, boatmen, domestic animals, elderly people, expectant mothers, faith in the blessed sacrament, fishermen, harvests, horses, lost articles, lower animals, male, mariners, oppressed people, paupers, poor people, pregnant women, sailors, Seekers of lost articles, starving people, swineherds, travel hostesses, travelers, and watermen. Uh, fun fact, if you lose something, you're supposed to bury a statue of St. Anthony. And hope that you get it back? And hope that you get it back. Well, I'm not sure how many of those make sense, but I do appreciate a lot of them. <laughs> so, well then, I'm still not running a very good record on... Patrons pop quizzes, but that's because this stuff is weird. <laughs> Honestly, I'm shocked that Preachers was not on there. It should be Preachers. <laughs> Somebody back me up. <laughs> if you want to back me up on this one, email us at sundayschoolforheathens at gmail.com. Tweet at us at school number four heathens. Our theme song is by Adam Griffin. Check him out at alteringgravity.wordpress.com. Our logo is by David Griffin, who also edited this episode. Thanks, David. You're the best. Do you have special thanks for this episode, Brian? Uh, I do not. I did this one all by myself. Well, I think that's all we have then. Amen. Amen. 
You may now go in peace to like and share the pod. Talking in my radio voice about religion. I'm very excited about religion. Here I am. I know the last test was not quite loud enough. The last test was maybe too loud. I wasn't loud enough, so I just moved the mic a little bit. We'll see how that looks.